This is the John Oakley Show podcast. There has been a study that's just come out. It refers to the opioid crisis in the States, and I guess here in Canada, too, to a certain extent. We're also in the throes of such. A number of people having died uh, because of opioids and fentanyl and so on and so forth. Uh, According to uh, a new report just out from the Journal of the American Medical Association Network, uh, prescriptions get filled for opioids in this country as well as the United States seven times faster than they do in Sweden for comparable surgeries, post-surgery treatment. Uh, Let's find out what's going on and why that might be. Joining us on the line, Dr. Brett Belchetz, who's Global News Radio's medical expert and an ER doctor. Brett, how are you this afternoon? I'm great, thanks. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you coming on uh, at such a timely occasion, too, with a survey having just come out. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that was a salient highlight there. Seven times the rate that we see in Sweden for prescribing opioids. Uh, Does that suggest to you that maybe there's an aggressive way of uh, getting uh, these into the hands of people here in this country? Well, there's two elements here here that were picked up upon in this research, and, and I think it's really interesting, and I, I think it's very timely given all of the issues that we're having around opioids, uh, both the consumption and the prescribing. But what they identified in this study was, was, first of all, the fact that physicians were prescribing opioids at much lower rates in these countries. Uh, they were typically using either lower dosages or they were resorting to other drugs that were not opioids for pain control after minor procedures. So that was the first part of it. The second part of the findings, which was also interesting, is that patients, even when they were prescribed opioids, tended to fill those prescriptions at much lower rates than what we see here in, the, in Canada and the United States. And so, you know, I think there's, there's some learnings on, on multiple fronts. I think, first of all, the, the obvious learning um, is that really we are prescribing too many opioids for minor conditions. And, and I think this is something that really needs to... Uh, this is a message that really needs to be drilled down into my profession, the medical profession, that for minor procedures, for, for issues where, you know, we're not talking about somebody that's been hit by a car as part of a car accident, not talking about somebody with cancer, with debilitating pain, we're talking about minor procedures. We certainly do not need to be prescribing opioids in high dosages with regularity. And, and I think that we've been hearing that message a little bit, but I think certainly this kind of a study shows that we haven't heard that message nearly enough, and there are some great learnings from other countries as to what we can do better. So that's first of all. But secondly, uh, there's an interesting question just societally about why these prescriptions are being filled at so much lower rates. So what is different about people in Sweden in terms of their expectations of pain after a procedure, how they manage pain, and what are the medications that they want to resort to? And, and so I think we, we really do need to dig into that a little bit more deeply to understand why for these patients opioids weren't something that they were jumping at very quickly versus, you know, in our country when we prescribe them, people immediately go to fill those prescriptions and use them. Yeah, and so uh, I guess that is the big question. Why uh, do they take or seek alternative approaches to pain management and we just default to opioids? Well, you you know, I think there's a lot of reasons behind this. So I I do think that we certainly have a society here where where people tend to look at prescription medication as a a very quick uh, cure-all for many, many issues. And especially around pain control, I think that, you know, many of us were brought up on this idea that medication was always going to be, you know, a great and and, an effective answer. And I think, you know, this has changed recently over the years as the opioid crisis has progressed, where I think many people have started to look at painkillers as maybe not the end-all and the be-all of what to do for pain. But I do think societally, we certainly have an attitude where our first go-to is pills for many, many things. And so I think it it speaks to potentially just a different psyche between how people are brought up and what the culture is around medication use. And and again, you know, this is just conjecture, but I do think 
it would be very helpful just to understand what, what is the messaging, you know, from a very early age that people are getting in these countries like Sweden around the use of painkillers and other medications versus what people are hearing here. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, aspect, the cultural aspect. Uh, for example, the team found that nearly 79% of people here in Canada, 76% of those in the States, who had one of four operations, gallbladder, appendix, breast lumps, or meniscus cartilage in the knee, uh, decided that they would fill their opioid prescriptions within seven days of leaving the hospital, compared with 11% of people in Sweden. The disparity there is striking. It's an incredible difference. You know, sometimes we see studies where there's very small differences where, you know, it's interesting, but really it is a curiosity. But this is this is really a striking difference that I don't think anybody can dismiss in any way. And so I think, you know, we really do. Again, we need to look at understanding you know, what is the messaging uh, people are brought up hearing? And, and also the other thing that I think is really important is what is the messaging that people are hearing around what is normal for a procedure like this? Because I think a lot of the time people here in Canada are told that, yes, you know, it, it, it's, it's something that's okay. You should rush to fill your prescription. You shouldn't feel pain. You should actually take the medication as much as you can. We want you to be, you know, not feeling any pain. And maybe that's not the right approach. You know, maybe we need to, you know, change the way that we look at speaking to people around a procedure to say it is okay to feel a little bit of pain. That's normal. That's your body's way of telling you that you're recovering and that that pain doesn't mean that there's any more harm and that pain will get better over time. And potentially, I think if we message a little more effectively that jumping to the opioids may not be the best thing for you after an operation, you know, that is another possible avenue by which we might be able to reach numbers that are better approximating what they're seeing over in Europe versus what we're seeing here. Again, with Dr. Brett Belchetz, Global News Radio's medical expert and ER doctor. By the way, what do you make of Purdue Pharma? Uh, the report is that they could be facing lawsuits uh, to the extent of $200 billion all in. I think they might have offered up $16 billion. The family is uh, one of the richest in America, and they're offering $3 billion out of their own pocket, which would really uh, be incidental or a dent. Uh but, I mean, is that going to get anybody's attention, $200 billion in fines? This is ground zero for the opioid crisis, they say. It's sort of uh, dialed down to Purdue Pharma. How do you see it? Well, you know, I think that this is a really interesting development, and I think what we're seeing here it has a very good analog in what happened with the tobacco industry when uh, a lot of people who were victims of big tobacco through lung cancer that, that they uh, you know, were diagnosed with as a result of smoking after the, the fact that, you know, the tobacco companies really did downplay the risks of developing both lung cancer and other respiratory diseases. Years later, these lawsuits resulted in huge, huge amounts being awarded to victims and, and huge financial penalties. And actually, was this, this was one of the major things that actually led to a lot of the collapse of the tobacco industry in North America and a lot of the loss of their lobbying power. And I think we're seeing something very similar happening now around the opioid industry and around these lawsuits that we're seeing. So, you know, my hope is that this actually uh, does actually lead to something that changes the behavior of these manufacturers, that takes away their lobbying power, that leads us to a better place where, where in fact, we're not aggressively pushing these medications again. Uh, because, I, I, you know, I do think that there have been a lot of behaviors on the part of the manufacturers that were fairly reprehensible and that I think were either directly or indirectly responsible for the crisis that we're facing right now. Again, to another crisis. Brad, I've got to ask, as an ER doctor, uh, there is a story that more than 100 Toronto emergency room doctors are uh, on uh, the province and the Ford government to reverse the public health cuts. Uh, By the way, did you sign on to that message? 
I actually wasn't aware of this petition until it made its way into the news, so I did not sign on to it. Um, but, but, but I certainly understand the concerns. And, you know, we, we've spoken about this topic before, and, and I've been asked about this a number of times. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, what is the impact of these cuts to public health funding? And, and so my response always on this topic is, that if this is a set of cuts that is targeting waste, so targeting back office costs, administrative costs, uh, you know, bloated um, bureaucracy, versus if these are cuts that are actually targeting frontline services, my opinion would be very different. So I would be very supportive of things that actually make us able to deliver services more efficiently. And I think it's really important, especially in the setting of our government having an $11 billion deficit this, this year. But that being said, uh, if we are looking at cutting frontline services, I would tend to agree with these positions. I think that that would be a very unwise idea. When we look at things like cutting out vaccination programs, you know, things like flu clinics, when we look at cutting out food inspections, et cetera, you know, these are things that would be very, very dangerous. And in fact, very quickly, we would be incurring a lot more cost to actually treat these illnesses as they pop up than we are spending to prevent them in the first place. So again, really different answer if we're actually cutting bureaucratic costs versus if we're cutting frontline services. Well, all right. It's being positioned as uh, it's going to compromise patient health in the province and that hallway medicine would continue unabated. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, you're there in the hospital, in the ER ward, certainly. Uh, what do you hear from your colleagues? Is this going to compromise patient health? Or uh, will it impact, you know, or in a negative way, perhaps hallway medicine, that it will continue unabated? Well, I certainly hear that concern from my colleagues. But, you know, again, I don't think any of us are, are yet in a position to understand exactly what is being cut. So if you look at the history of some of the expenditures among public health uh, budgets, what we've seen is a lot of escalation in budgets and not all of that has gone to frontline service provision. So, Again, I'll reiterate, if what we're cutting is a lot of the back office costs, um, I really don't think it's going to lead to any expansion of hallway medicine or any worsening of our problems that we face in the hospital. But that being said, you know, I, I, I cannot reiterate enough that we should not be cutting any of these frontline programs. If we cut down on flu clinics, if we cut down on food inspections, if we cut down on the many other things that public health workers are doing on the front lines, all of these are going to actually lead to dramatic escalations in the visit volumes that we will see in the emergency rooms. And certainly this is something that our, that our system is not going to be able to handle. And this will result in a lot more costs than those initial uh, public health services would have actually incurred. And yet, uh, I do recall on a previous occasion when we talked, you said efficiencies certainly can be found in the system. Yeah, there's, there's no question. There's no question that when we look at what's happened with budgets, the budgets have gone up. And, and there's no question that not all of those budgets have gone to frontline service delivery. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, I'm going to go back again to the fact that we have an $11 billion deficit, that we're barely able to fund our healthcare system as it is, that there are many, many services that are at risk of potentially, you know, not being able to be delivered due to our failing finances. And so we do have to find places where we can save. And, and you know, I think public health is not immune from waste, it's not immune from bloating, and I, I certainly think just because the cause that you know they, that they're delivering and the services that they're delivering are valuable doesn't mean that there aren't ways that we can save in those departments. And and so you know I absolutely would be supportive of us trying to do this more efficiently. And if that's what they're doing, I'd be supportive of that. Um, but again, you know for you know I'm going to reiterate yet one more time is I am not supportive of cutting these frontline services because these are very much invaluable to the delivery of good healthcare to our population. All right, I got that message clearly. Thanks so much, Brad. As always. My pleasure. You have a great day. And you, Dr. Brett Belchett, Global News Radio's medical expert and ER doctor.
Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 